0: Welcome to the Beyond Barriers podcast. When women lead, share performance and profits go up 50%. Results are more powerful when everyone is empowered. This is the insight that brought the four founders of Beyond Barriers together. We came from a diverse set of leadership backgrounds with a common goal, to close the gender gap at work and expand economic opportunities for everyone. Tune in each week as one of us interviews inspiring guests who share stories and cutting edge strategies that will help you learn what helped them go further, faster.
1: I think the first part of helping to have people that are in underrepresented groups have longer careers is we have to work really hard to create cultures where that's not happening, right? So we have to have cultures where people in whatever they bring in terms of their background and their individual experiences, they can be that version of themselves every day. So you just take away that exhaustion piece so that those folks, women in particular, have a chance to spend all their time and energy on advancing and sharpening their skills, building their relationships, doing all the things that we want all of our folks to do to build those satisfying careers, but with a little less of the background of that fatigue from dealing with comments or slides or feeling out of place. And that takes day-to-day work, right? It creates defining the culture. It creates enforcing the culture. We spend a lot of time here, and the core of the way that works is if we actually have real connections with one another.
2: Tune in to today's episode as we explore the keys to fostering career sustainability, creating cultures that defy burnout, and nurturing work-life harmony. I'm your host, Brooke Skinner Ricketts, and today we're privileged to chat with legal powerhouse Hillary Preston. Vice Chair of Vincent N. Elkins. Discover the importance of embracing a long-term perspective in your career, setting reasonable limits, and recognizing the power of occasional deceleration. Hillary's story is a source of inspiration for anyone seeking to carve their own path, proving that success isn't just about the climb, it's about finding sustainable practices that allow you to thrive both professionally and personally. Visit GoBeyondBarriers.com where you will find show notes and links to all the resources in this episode, including the best way to get in touch with our special guest. Our conversation with Hillary Preston on career endurance begins now. Hillary, thank you so much for agreeing to spend some time with us today. I would love it if you could just start out by sharing your story, maybe pieces of the story that we might not find if we uh, Googled you and your uh, incredible accomplishments, and maybe include a couple of insights or lessons that you gathered along the way.
1: Thanks for having me, first of all. Thanks for all the work you're doing with Beyond Barriers and with this podcast. So I'm Hillary Preston. I'm the vice chair of Vincent and Elkins, which is a full-service law firm about 700 lawyers, both domestically and internationally. I have been at the firm 20 years before I was at the firm I studied law at UT Law School and before that I studied physics at at Rice on the non-googleable information I grew up all over the place mostly in Texas I went to nine different schools before high school so a lot of jumping around my career at the firm has been a mix of trying new things so right now I serve in this vice chair role which is part of our executive leadership of the firm which is charged with direction of the firm, strategic additions, all of the investments we make to grow the firm and serve our clients. But in addition to that, I have a litigation practice that's really focused on helping clients sort through fights over who owns what technology and how they can use that technology. So uh, both of those pieces are, are part of my day job. I've been reflecting on what would I say is some core lessons that have come out over that career. And one of the things I think that is so important is recognizing, it's hard to do this when it's early on in your career, but recognizing that hopefully your career, your educational history, the whole path is a long one, not a short one. And how do we find ways, particularly for women, to make that sustainable, to make that something that we can continue to do over years and decades through all kinds of life changes. And one thing that I've always returned to, which maybe sounds counterintuitive, is to really think about, first decide for yourself, where are your limits? And I don't mean limits intellectually or skill set wise. I mean limits in terms of your time investment, your emotional investment, what you're willing to do in terms of investment in your career and your work versus things that are outside of your work. And I think there's a tendency for a lot of people, and in in my experience, especially for women, to run at a thousand miles an hour always, and then be surprised when they wake up a couple of years later and they're completely burned out. So I I spend a lot of time counseling folks about figuring out that balance that works for them and then letting their career goals and things meet that rather than the other way around, because otherwise it's just not sustainable.
2: I know my experience was I had to exceed my limits and fall down and collapse in order to figure out where they were. And I think that's true for a lot of us. How did you discover where your lines were or your contours?
1: Yeah, there were some things that were always clear to me, although I'm sure I crossed this line many times for short periods of time, but hopefully not for long periods of time. So I'm actually married to my high school sweetheart. So I've got a long history with one person. There's a lot of grounding that comes from someone who's in your home that has known you since you were an awkward teenager. So that's been incredibly helpful. Once we had kids, I knew what kind of what version of a parent I wanted to be. I wanted to be there present whenever I could be. Obviously, the career that I have is it takes a lot of time. I mean, we're in the advice business and that takes time. But I knew that they were they were things that I wasn't willing to sacrifice certain amounts of time with my kids, and when I was younger, that defined that set my boundaries for me. And as I've gotten older, I realized that I have to figure out the ways that that I'm maintaining those boundaries in a way that I can keep being productive and contribute to the organization and helping my clients.
2: It's so interesting with
1: kids because I feel like the
2: minute you feel like you've got it under control, they shift, right? (laughs) There's that, that we all have to be fluid in life in general, but in particular when it comes to children.
1: I spend a lot of time talking to young parents, both men and women at the firm, about reminding them to be flexible in their own expectations for exactly that reason. You don't know. We talk to a lot of women before they go out on their maternity leaves. Many of them were all type A personalities, right? So we have a plan for what we're going to do when we come back. I spend a lot of time counseling people. Just set the plan aside. Wait and see how you feel. You don't know if you're going to want to come back right at the end of your leave, if you're going to want some additional time, if you're going to want to be part-time versus full-time give yourself the grace to figure those things out over time and to change your mind.
2: So you hold a really significant leadership role, both as a leader of your clients, but also as a leader of this um, giant firm. Did you always, did you imagine you would be a leader? Did you, I know you studied physics. So tell me about how that came to be.
1: Yeah, it's a fair question. The short answer is that I did not. So I, yeah, so physics is more um, individual focused kind of, in my word, nerdy, and that's a positive word in our household, but I obviously chose to go into a legal practice. I grew up in a mostly working class environment. I didn't know any lawyers. I certainly didn't know anything about law firms. I definitely didn't know anything about big law, which is the shorthand for firms like ours. And so when I started at the firm, I was incredibly happy to have a group of people around me that were supportive, work that was engaging work that was challenging and that allowed me to keep developing. To be honest, at that stage of my career, I didn't give any thought to being a leader. That was enough. Having engaging work with people that I liked and thought that I could learn from was the whole goal. I think that what I did have is a lot of opinions and I voiced them. And I realized that sometimes voicing those opinions actually affected change within the institution. And so in small bits and pieces, that starts evolving into people asking you to serve in leadership roles. Well, Hillary's got an opinion on this. Let's ask her what she thinks. I would say it was a step-by-step evolution into the leadership roles, but I didn't think about it when I started.
2: I, I think it's so important that everybody always shows up with a point of view and great if you're right and great if you're wrong. Like, that's not the point It's that, you know, that, that you're there to participate in the conversation. Was that ever a struggle for you or did that just come naturally?
0: Well,
1: I mean, I, it's uncomfortable at times, particularly if you're, you know, a 25 year old. I'm a very short person. I'm mean, know, <laughs> 25 year old, short young woman. You don't naturally feel like, um, especially if it's a world you don't you didn't grow up in, you, you think maybe. I don't know enough or um I don't have all the background so my opinion's going to be misplaced. But one of the things that translated from the work I did for clients was our teams here have always been a place where exactly what you were just saying, everyone should have an opinion. The questions that come to us from our clients are asking us what we should do, what they should do in a crisis situation. So you've got to have a view on what that is. And the best way to get to those answers is for people to have lots of different views that get debated. And it's okay if your idea is terrible, but let's debate it and let's hear it through. So I think that culture of allowing space for people to have opinions that were also wrong translated over into having a being comfortable sharing opinions about the institution itself or what else we should be doing.
2: And you've been at one firm for your entire career, right? So clearly that firm has fed you in lots of different ways. I'd love to know if you could, if you were going to counsel a, a young person in your life about the key to gaining clarity on your career path or your purpose That's something that in particular, the generations coming up are really focused on. would love to hear your perspective on that.
1: I think about two categories of things on how to to how to think about finding some clarity about your own goals and and how you get there. One is the category of really gut checking that there's something about your job that you like, and that sounds perhaps oversimplified, but you know, in jobs like ours, many professional services industries, maybe all industries. There are lots of challenges in the job. It takes a lot of time. The subject matter is hard. Perhaps you have demanding clients. Deadlines from courts can be unreasonable. So there's always going to be lots of challenges, but you have to make sure, first and foremost, that there is a core of what you're doing that you find engaging and rewarding. I talk to a lot of young people, and they'll talk about wanting to achieve a certain position or type of industry recognition disconnected from the work they're going to be doing every single day and so i try and push people away from that you you have to enjoy what you're doing day to day the end goals will materialize a little bit later hopefully but you've got to enjoy what you're doing so in in my world we're litigators so we like standing up in court and presenting arguments we like crafting legal arguments i like giving advice to clients that are helping them solve a problem So making sure on that clarity of purpose, really checking in with yourself to see, is there something, recognizing there's hard parts, is there something about the job that I truly enjoy and find interesting enough to get up and do every day for the next however many years? The second part of that clarity of purpose category that I would say is make sure that you've got enough people around you that you can bounce those ideas around. And that's a lot of people talk about a network of people that is both inside and outside of your profession. So when you're coming up in your organization, hopefully you have some more senior people that you can have very real, honest conversations with. But hopefully you have people outside of that world too that you can check in with and say, this is what I'm thinking about doing. Does this make sense to you based on what you know about me? And putting those together to find out if it feels like the right path for you. Who are those people for you on the outside of the work world? Well, my husband, first of all, he's my consistent sounding board, my best sounding board, and probably the one that's it's easiest to say. That sounds like a terrible idea for you that you don't like that at all. Let me remind you of that. My family, old friends. I try and draw from as many people as are willing to to listen to my questions, honestly. And do you have different, because
2: this comes up a lot on the podcast, like a personal board of directors, which I think a lot of successful people have. Do you have certain people who you call for certain things or do you like do a survey to everybody when you're wrestling with something?
1: Definitely the former, certain people for certain things, different category of people for personal challenges versus work challenges. And even within the work challenges, people that I developed relationships with when I was a junior person 20 years ago serve a different role in my life now. They're probably into their retirement at this point, but um, if you're lucky enough, you can keep up those relationships and ask them questions. Tell me
2: about building your personal brand or kind of managing your reputation. And then within that, also telling your story, right? You've obviously been elevated to one of the senior most positions in your firm. What role did telling your story and managing your reputation play in getting there? And how do you approach that?
1: One consistent thing that I spend a lot of time talking to people about and has certainly been a piece of advice I got early on, and again, sounds oversimplified, is you're in our world, the only thing that you have is your reputation and your integrity. It is what you get hired for. It's what judges think about you first thing when you walk into a courtroom. It's what your colleagues think about you. So never losing sight of that personal integrity in whatever that means for you. It means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But when I think about what that means for me, It is one being dependable, the classics, do what you say you're going to do, something that we talk to our children about, right? Do what you say you're going to do, be the person whose word actually means something. It, It sounds quaint, but I think it's core and the professional analog of that is making sure that you're giving the right information accurately, fairly, without an agenda I mean, obviously, we're advocates by profession. We always have a position we're advocating for, but making sure that you're presenting that information in a way that's direct and truthful and honest. And not to say that's enough, because there's a lot of people that that abide by that that don't go on to have long, successful careers, but it is the first step. And it's something that that people need to make sure that they never lose sight of. I like the concept of building your own brand, but I am admittedly terrible at it. It's not something that I've been able to adopt, but I am very focused on building relationships. And I guess that's a version of it. So in that category, I think a core thing I always think about is finding a way that you have something to offer to the other person in the relationship, right? I had a piece of advice that came to me when I was a very junior lawyer from a mentor who we could not have been different in backgrounds. He came up through a very privileged background, had been in this sort of big law, financial institutions world for a long time. And I asked him one time for some advice, naively at 25, 26 years old. And he was like, I have one thing to say to you, classic like sound bite advice, but it stuck with me. Make yourself useful. And that means a lot of different things over time. I've evolved it to make yourself useful To people that you admire, to people that you want to work with and approaching those relationships, not so much as what could this person do for me, but how can I be useful to that person? One, it's more satisfying and you'll find that those relationships get deeper more quickly.
2: Do you have or have you had like significant mentors along the way?
1: Lots of them. Thankfully, lots of them and still do. And they fall into different categories over time. I had people that when I was more junior really pushed me, sometimes in ways that made me uncomfortable, but meaning they'd say, I do think you're ready to go handle this oral argument, or yes, you can take the lead on that particular assignment. And and we need that. We need the people that see something in us before we see it, and they can help you draw it out. I've had people that were tremendous mentors in terms of finding some version of work-life balance, people that have been through it. I think, unfortunately, there's still very few women who are a generation older than I am that you can look to. But I was very fortunate to have a bunch of men, mostly men, who could serve that same mentor role. So their life didn't look exactly like mine. Their role in their family didn't look exactly like mine, but still had a version of that balance that I wanted to find pieces of to emulate. So I think that's incredibly helpful. So yeah, lots of mentors and sponsors. And then over time, if you're lucky enough to continue in these careers for a long time, I've had clients that have been mentors. And and what I mean by that is obviously they've hired us to help them solve a problem. So we're providing that service, but they've been doing it perhaps 20, 30 years longer and can give you some feedback that helped you grow in your career. The foundation for being able to receive that feedback is that you have some relationship with them. So they feel that it's appropriate for them to give you that feedback. But that's been hugely helpful to have that direct relationship that someone can say, when you did X, Y, or Z, that wasn't great. Here's where you missed the mark, but you have to be willing to accept that.
2: I really love this idea that we talked about at the beginning of like career endurance. And it's been interesting to see there are so many Gen X women who are just like, they probably have one or two big jobs and like I'm talking very senior women and they're just peacing out because they're so fried. Right. <laughs> and so I'd love to, but I'm interested both for the, because we work with a lot of mid-career women. We work with a lot of senior women and, and I want for the mid-career women not to hit that point, And I want for the senior women to find renewal, right? <laughs> and not just burn out in work. I'd love to, have you thought about, and maybe you've applied this within your firm, but have you thought about like, how do we nurture that? How do we create those cultures or just one-on-one relationships with people? What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I think part of it is, and now and this has been a bit gendered, but I think is appropriate. I think that for a lot of women in particular, there's a fatigue that happens for them day to day that isn't always visible to a lot of other people. So when you get, we'll stick with the Gen X women who have been at it for a couple of decades. I'm in that category. You sometimes don't recognize the toll that fatigue has taken on you. And what I mean by that is you've got in my world, judges that will comment, this happens less now than it did 20 years ago, but judges that will comment on whether you're wearing a pantsuit versus a skirt suit, people that call you little lady, people that ask you to go get coffee, just nothing that is horrible on its own, but all these little things that wear you out and have the risk to make you feel less than on a day-to-day basis, in addition to all the like actual difficult legal work that you're trying to accomplish. And so I mentioned that point to say, I think the first part of helping to have women have longer careers or people that are in underrepresented groups have longer careers is we have to work really hard to create cultures where that's not happening, right? So we have to have cultures where people, in whatever they bring in terms of their background and their individual experiences, they can be that version of themselves every day. So you just take away that, I mean, ideally it's probably not 100%, but you work really hard to take away that exhaustion piece. So that those folks, women in particular, have a chance to spend all their time and energy on advancing and sharpening their skills, building their relationships, doing all the things that we want all of our folks to do to build those satisfying careers, but with a little less of the background of that fatigue from dealing with comments or slides or feeling out of place. And that takes day-to-day work, right? It creates defining the culture. It creates enforcing the culture. We spend a lot of time here emphasizing that the core of how we're a big organization, but we all still work together. And the core of the way that works is if we actually have real connections with one another. So you have to spend the time to know each other, not because we want to all go have beers at the football game together. Not for that reason. But I mean, that's great if people want to do that, no, no criticism. But because you have to have that some sort of personal connection first so that people feel comfortable just going about their day in a way that isn't exhausting for them. That
2: really important framing. I think it's and it's both like the microaggressions or the and by the way, I have a great little lady story for another time. It turned into a nickname for me because it was, but, but also then you have this dynamic of many women, and you know, your, your first generation corporate or your first generation in the role that you've got. There's so much time spent trying to like decode sort of the, all of the signs and signifiers and all the that it, that's a tax, right? It's a time tax because you're like, you can't be out drinking a beer, if that's what you want to do, or you can't be out socializing because you're like studying up on, on this context. And so I think that's one of the things we focus on too, is can we shortcut that for people to help them get to the good stuff faster, but, but it's really tricky and unwinding that culturally, not just for women and uh, underrepresented groups, but also for our pale male friends, right. Who are yeah. big the puzzle, right. This is systemic as well as individuals.
1: Yeah. I think it's really important. I'd love to hear sometime about how you guys work on that. I think. For us, one, it's being aware as a starting point of what background people do bring to the table, whether you're a white man, but you've never set foot in an office building. That brings a lot of challenges in terms of fitting in and not fitting in, but just navigating, as you said, all those little codes that you think everyone else knows that you don't. You certainly have to take the time to be aware of what people, what their background is and moving away from assumptions about what types of activities and ways of engagement people enjoy. And maybe just asking them, would you like to go to this football game or would you prefer to go for a walk around the lake or whatever it is, just different ways of connecting with people.
0: What if you knew exactly where to focus to go further, faster? Imagine having clarity on your strengths and barriers and the ability to take action and gain unstoppable momentum to deliver results In advance, take the Beyond Barriers Momentum Metric Quiz to get a personalized report on the five C's core categories used to measure and accelerate success. Visit slash quiz to get your report today.
2: So one of the things, one of the biggest barriers that we work on with folks is overcoming fears and limiting beliefs, right? And we all have these, whether they they come from all sorts of places and some of them either, some of them even gather momentum as we
1: grow in our
2: careers. So I'd love to hear one, how have you dealt with overcoming fears and limiting beliefs? And then two, how do you counsel others in this regard?
1: Yeah, this is a ongoing challenge for everyone I know, because there's always new challenges and always new fears, right? You know, I had certain sets of fears when I was a junior person, fear of standing up in the courtroom, for example. And as I got more senior, you think about, gosh, I'm uncomfortable being the only woman in this decision-making body. So those fears keep coming and they keep changing. I think that's one important to recognize. Sometimes people... Beat themselves up because they'll say to themselves, well, oh, I've been doing this five years and I'm still anxious about X. Well, well, you might be for the rest of your career. And that's okay, because these are parts of what we do. We're pushing ourselves, we're trying new things. The advice I give, it sounds it sounds terrible, and hopefully it's not, but I know a lot of people have found it's helpful, and I've found it helpful. So take an example of something that's giving you like incredible anxiety. Um, I'll just use the classic litigators example. You're standing up to make a very important oral argument in our world. That means it's time limited. You've got three judges sitting there staring at you. There's a red light, yellow light, green light. When your time's up, you must stop talking. They can ask you whatever you want. You're supposed to know everything under the sun in a matter of 20 minutes. So very anxiety-producing situation for most people, at least. I actually try and for myself and for other people that are having anxiety about that type of situation or other parallels, imagine the absolute worst case scenario. Imagine it. Imagine you stood up and no words came out of your mouth or you forgot why you were there, like that classic dream example. You don't even remember what the case is about. And then what happened afterwards? Probably you went home or you went and found a friend and had a martini with them or went for a run or whatever else, and life went on. So sometimes I have to tell people, and I'm sure that would be terrible advice for certain categories of people, but for a lot of people, working your way through that worst case scenario and recognizing that even if you quote unquote embarrass yourself, it'll be okay. You'll keep going, you'll keep moving, you'll do better next time. So I actually do sometimes play out the worst case scenario in my mind, and then the next day after that, not just the worst case scenario, but what happens next. And I think it allows you to just realize and it's okay to take that shot. It's okay to just stand up and give it your best effort. You will find things to criticize about your best effort, and that's okay. So that's been a really useful tool for me and a, and a number of my colleagues.
2: Yeah. I th- I think that's so valuable. I mean, I think the other thing that often happens when you project that out is you realize that you would regret more not taking the shot, right? Than taking it and falling completely on your face, right? It's right. just like, there's one, it's not going to be that bad if you fall on your face. Two, you're probably not going to fall on your face. And three, like it would be really sad if you didn't
1: leave. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if you're really challenging yourself and you're trying to develop new skills and push yourself, there will be times that you do things that you look back on and you're embarrassed about. And that's all right. You got to push those things to develop those skills to get better for the next time. And I've had oral arguments where in the middle of it, I started breaking out sweating. Like I had just been running a 10K, super embarrassing. But sometimes you just have to stand there and be like, all right, I'm going to get through this in this really awkward way. And then I will leave and go take a minute. And that's that's just something for people to keep in mind. The consequences are in a lot of what we're doing in professional services world, the fear is around standing up and doing something, standing up and using your voice, whether in a courtroom setting, in a boardroom setting, in just giving difficult advice or feedback to someone else. And we we turn that into this physical fear thing, which it's not, right? So just making yourself kind of work through those challenges and getting used to it is... Um, it it takes practice.
2: I think a lot of these like core skills. It's not something you ever accomplish, right? It, it's like yoga. You just keep coming back to it. You keep and and you don't ever. You don't ever. You're not ever a master, not in this life anyway. Okay, tell me about your. Did you have any daily habits or rituals that you consider key to your success?
1: Yes, and I'll talk through current things since they definitely changed a lot over the years. Depending on what was going on in my work life and personal life. Currently, daily habits for me, I'm a very early morning person. So I am up very early. I do have time before the rest of the household gets up. And generally, I do nothing in that time. I'm not one of these people that will tell you like I meditated and worked out and, you know, took a cold plunge and all these wonderful things. None of that's happening. It's just me waking up and like calming down before the day actually starts. I really do, it sounds so trite, but I really do make sure to get daily exercise of some form. I found that the number of things that feel overwhelming and insurmountable before exercise and after exercise are vastly different. My my brain turns things up into very big concerns. You take the step back, you get some exercise in whatever way works for you. And then afterwards, you're like, all right, that's just a series of to-dos that I can actually work through. It's not this insurmountable problem. When I can, I travel a lot. But when I can, I really do try to prioritize when I'm home in Austin. I spend time with my family every day. And that's, again, doesn't sound like much of an accomplishment, but in in the world where your time is your asset... It's something that keeps me centered and balanced and you know, grateful. So definitely try to make time for that.
2: yeah. I love the just being time, right? because <laughs> like, we get so focused on, well, what did you do? and how did it go? and right its a, it is really nice to I'm a little twitchy, so i'm I'm practicing that. but it's important to remember how to do that.
1: And it's not easy, right? I mean, most of us are conditioned or programmed, or it's our national state of affairs or something to be productive at every possible moment. So being unproductive is is actually something that can take work, which sounds counterintuitive.
2: There's a, an Instagram, there's an organization called the Nap Ministry, <laughs> and okay. it's all, all about like radical rest, right? <laughs> and just like unapologetic, radical rest. And that it's something I'm still working to get my head around. <laughs> How about um, difficult decisions? How do you, we talked about like that kind of fear setting or that gaming out the worst case scenario, which I think is super helpful. What about when you're in a scenario where you have to make a difficult decision, either with time or on a time constraint? How do you how do
1: you approach that? Not surprisingly, difficult decisions are hard. It's it maybe a truism. It depends for me on the type of decision. If it's a decision that affects my family, there'll be a lot of conversations with the family as a way to, even if I'm the one that has to make whatever this decision is, to try and make sure that I've got the input from that I'm not missing anything. We moved back from the New York area, to Austin a couple of years ago, actually right before COVID coincidentally. And that was disruptive for the kids who were in elementary school at the time, middle school. And my husband and I just spent hours and hours talking about the pros and cons of that. And it was not a welcome decision at the time by the kids or by many family members we were leaving behind, but it was one that we knew in our hearts was right for our family. But lots of talking. In in the work world, when I've got a difficult decision or more often a difficult issue I've got to work through with a client, the client has a difficult decision and I know the advice I'm going to give them is not going to be easy for them to hear. I spend a lot of time, one, organizing the data, right? What are all the facts and legal principles and issues that are relevant to this? How do I present them in a way that makes that case clearer? And sometimes as professionals that have done this work for a long time, you skip those steps. You assume everybody knows what the baseline inputs are for your decision. So making sure you've explained those baseline inputs. And then really, I write everything down. I write everything down by hand and I scratch it out and I tear it up and I throw it away and I write it down again and I do it again and I practice the issue, whether either out loud or just on paper. And then I run it by colleagues. How does this sit with you? Does this make sense? Here's the advice I'm about to give. Does that resonate with you? And I think one of the things that, you know, for professional service people, for lawyers, we need a community of people that are able to provide that feedback. We all think highly of our own advice, which is good, but you want to make sure that you're not missing an angle or that someone else who has a different perspective or who has A different level of experience can give you feedback to say, I don't understand what you're saying or your advice sounds off in this way. Let's work through it. So we spend a lot of time internally making sure that people are really open to having those types of idea generation sessions and just bouncing those ideas off of each other and refining whatever the advice is. It it takes time, but it's how you get to better results for sure.
2: That's great. That's great. Okay. Last question before the the lightning round questions. Tell me a little bit about your firm and why, how they've kept you for so long <laughs> and why it feels like home and just a little bit more about, about that piece of the puzzle.
1: Yeah. I'm happy to. We could spend a whole session on that. So, like I said, at the, when we first started chatting, the firm is a full service firm at about 700 lawyers spread out through offices throughout the United States, London, the Middle East and Tokyo. And the industries we serve are all over the map, financial services, the energy industry, infrastructure, technology, lots of government contracts, lots of different types of industries. So there's a wide variety of people and areas of expertise within the firm, which is a, a very positive thing for me. I think having a large group of people that are all experts in their field that you can draw from is huge. And I I enjoy it. And it's helpful when you're trying to figure out a puzzle piece to some difficult problem. When I think you're about the angle of what's kept me at the firm for so long, I have different answers to that for different times in my career, but I, I share them with people on a regular basis. When I was starting out for our folks that are just coming out of law school, The thing that kept me at the firm was, without a doubt, the level of investment that I felt from people around me. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of firms, companies more broadly, where the more senior people aren't actually accessible to the more junior people, right? Whether because of just culture or hierarchy or physical distance between those people, where the younger people, I think, are hamstrung in their development because they don't have access to... How is this more senior experienced person considering this problem? So for me here, and this is a big part of what we try and emphasize, all our junior people need to be fully integrated members of the team, including with the client, because that's how they learn how to be what I would call a fully formed lawyer. Thinking about the client's problem, thinking about our role in that problem, thinking about how to execute on a solution. But that takes people's doors being open and that takes people more senior accepting that you are going to have someone in the room that makes a suggestion that is terribly off base. And that's okay because we want to hear the suggestions. So when I was more junior, that was incredibly, incredibly important to me and something we work hard to replicate, uh, make sure it's still a part of the culture. As I became more senior, what was amazing for me and was a real hook point in staying within the firm is. I had, again, a lot of opinions, a lot of ideas, a lot of different types of clients I wanted to bring into the firm that we didn't have relationships with already. And as a senior associate and junior partner, I was shocked and amazed at how much the more senior people were willing to support those efforts instead of saying, well, Hillary, don't you, that's not worthwhile, or that'll never be important enough to pursue People got on planes, they came to meetings with me, they supported me, and then let that be my undertaking instead of feeling like they were taking it over or pushing me aside as a more junior person. So that feeling that you can really build something that's, quote, you have some ownership over in addition to playing your role in the larger firm was hugely important because it makes it for a more satisfying day-to-day experience.
2: Can you tell what book has greatly influenced you?
1: I would say, well, there's lots. That is my one hobby. I don't have many hobbies, but reading is my one hobby. So very hard question for me. But a book that I come back to on a regular basis is called, I don't know if you know it, called A Religion of One's Own. And it's about finding meaningful connections in mundane, sounds too critical, but in, in all aspects of your life. Find things that are enriching, that might not be obvious that they should be enriching. And I'm certainly the author would criticize me of oversimplifying it, but that's a piece of the puzzle that I've gotten out of that book that I return to quite a bit.
2: What is your favorite inspiring quote or saying?
1: For me, the one that I return to is, be the change you want to see in the world. What's a
2: one-word moniker or couple-word moniker that you would use to describe yourself?
1: I would say, hopefully, steady. I think are the challenges that the world creates and that our clients hire us to help them navigate require a level of evenness despite perceived chaos around us.
2: What's one change that you implemented in your life that made it better?
1: I've been working really hard on a gratitude practice. I would say I'm not doing great at it yet, but I'm working really hard at it and it does make a difference. It is an easy way to shift your mindset about what you're going to do that day and just be grateful for all the things that are easy to take for granted. I woke up in a warm bed. I ate a delicious breakfast. I have a healthy family You know all these things that you can get overwhelmed by your to-do list of the day and forget those things. And I've found that just um, working on that has been a really helpful mind shift for me.
2: I interviewed someone last week who said, Somewhere someone is praying for the things that you take for granted. It's it's been on my heart since she said it. So okay. I think she tried a similar idea. Um okay. And what's your power song that you would want to play as you walk out onto a court or field or a stage? Or <laughs> what room I should have.
1: I like the idea of a song in the courtroom. That would be a nice show. Oh, do you do you think? Yeah, that would be fun. I would like that. This one is definitely aspirational, but I hope this would be a good fit, but I might not have earned it yet. But I would say Girl on Fire, Alicia Keys.
2: I think you should just see what happens if you play that in a courtroom sometime. Find it, find a
1: friendly judge. <laughs> yeah, cool just too. immediately get sanctioned <laughs> by the judge for the decision <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll report back,
2: <laughs> Hillary. Thank you so much. This has just been a wonderful conversation, and I'm really grateful to get to know you. I think we could probably talk for hours, but I just I know your time is valuable, and really appreciate you sharing some of it and your wisdom with us. So.
0: Yeah, thanks so much. Really enjoyed the discussion. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Beyond Barriers podcast. There are thousands of podcasts out there and we are so grateful that you've chosen to listen to ours. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and tell a friend or share what you've learned on LinkedIn and tag us. We love hearing from our audience. Visit us at gobeyondbarriers.com where you can subscribe and find show notes, links, and the best way to connect with our guests.